0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Sight, Sound & Story podcast. We host conversations with cinematographers and editors in the hopes that filmmakers young and old will be able to learn something new and hone their own craft. Today's episode is a special episode because it's our very first episode in the series. We've been doing these events for a couple of years now, and we've been posting the panel discussions and clip analysis on YouTube. But with this podcast, we're trying to make them more accessible. That way, whether you're out of Wi-Fi range or you need to focus your eyes on the road, you can still hear from the filmmaking icons that have come through Manhattan Edit workshop. On this episode, we have cinematographer Bruce Logan. And man, Bruce is such a modest guy for the career he's had. This is the man responsible for designing the zero-gravity explosions on the original Star Wars, the cinematographer who brought the computerized world of the original Tron to life with the film techniques he'll be discussing here. His work even features in the original Blade Runner, but I don't want to spoil that story for those of you who haven't heard it. We had Zeiss sales manager Snehal Patel talk with Bruce Logan on the panel, and that's a real treat because not only does Snehal's knowledge of lenses really help guide the discussion, but he's also a huge fan of the sci-fi films Bruce worked on. A lot of these iconic sci-fi films wouldn't have been so iconic without Bruce's thoughtful and meticulous approach to cinematography, so we were very lucky to have him talk to us back in December 2018. The panel starts at the beginning of his illustrious career, and ends with a Q&A with the audience. So without further ado, let's jump into this behind-the-lens discussion with cinematographer Bruce Logan.
1: First of all, Bruce Logan, ASC. Everyone give him a round of applause. <laughs> cinematographer, filmmaker.
2: Thank you, thank you very much. It's great to be invited here. It feels like I'm having a career, which is fantastic. You...
1: <laughs> you have a career, my friend. Yes. Uh, what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna stay on stage when we play the clips. I hope you don't mind uh, that we do that. But we're gonna play a clip and then we're gonna discuss it. Okay, so you're gonna get a a look at what we're talking about first, I think, and and then okay. and then we'll talk about it. You're very good. So um, the first clip, Bruce. Show and tell. Show and tell. The first clip. Um, what movie is this? This first clip.
2: It's a, um,
1: It's your first film that you worked on, right? First. First
2: film I worked on. Yeah, I had been. Uh, I I started off my filmmaking career as an animator for a small um, animation company in uh, Elstree or in Boreham Wood, and uh, a, my favorite uh, director of all time came into town and was making a huge feature film called 2001 Space Odyssey. Oh, that little picture. That little picture. And um, I got invited to the party, which was uh, really great. You know.
1: The interesting thing is, you know, uh, a filmmaker might spend, you know, if they're working in the crew, maybe a month or two on a film. A director is going to spend maybe up to a year on a project or uh, a producer. But how much time did you personally spend on this film.
2: Well, I was on the film for two and a half years. That's incredible. Which is the longest uh, gainful employment I've ever had in my <laughs> life. <you know? laughs> they will never happen again. In <laughs> one stretch. No, I don't think it will. Um, yeah, no, I was, I was um, hired by Doug Trumbull as an animation artist, and they found out that I could shoot animation because i have been an animation camera trainee and I'd also made my own films and stuff. Um, and it allowed for the, the first thing that we did for the first year or so was to do all the little readouts and all the uh, screens. And uh, there was that first year. For the first year. What? Yes. So there was, a, there was a lot of material to be done, you know. And um, because there was such massive amounts of it in the animation process, <clears throat> you know the animation artists will do the artwork. And then they'll write a dope sheet, which tells the uh, the cameraman how to uh, how to shoot the uh, animation scenes. And so, what I was able to do for them was I would do the artwork, and then I would take my artwork under the camera, and without the without the intermediate step of writing the dope sheet, I was just able to uh, kind of wing it under the um, camera. So I was able to produce a lot of uh, a lot of material in a short period of time.
1: Yeah, and then that made you invaluable to Doug and his team. It did, and that's why the reason you were there till the end.
2: Um. Yeah, well, I was there till yeah. I was the last man standing, actually. <laughs> um, it was um, the 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 opening shot of the movie, the title sequence that you well, you didn't see the whole sequence, but at the beginning the opening title is called The Occultation Shot, and we did about 36 versions of that shot before we came up with this version. But uh, Stanley was such a perfectionist that he, um, he didn't want any foreign country having uh, a dupe negative for the title of, uh, of their particular version of the film. So the last thing I did was that shot, I, I had to shoot it in uh, eight different languages and uh, stanley was on a um, he was on a baby he, he was a private pilot but he never f- he never flew uh, on any airline so he uh he took a boat and a train to los angeles still cutting the movie uh while i was shooting those last shots you know
1: boat and train from the uk yeah wow yeah So, you know, in terms of education, what was this like for you?
2: Well, this was my film school. This was your film school. Yeah, it was was great working with Doug because uh, he really had the run of the studio. So, you know, we got to do models, we got to do um, animation, uh, got to know my way around the optical printer, and... um, yeah, it was it, it was my education, you know.
1: So in, at that time, when you're doing animation, you're doing single frame cameras, right? One frame at a time.
2: Yeah. yeah. So that that and and that I'd kind of taught myself, but um, the age of twelve, I was a massive Disney fan, and uh, you know I was kind of starved for animation in England because the the Disney features came through and there was one show on british television i think on christmas day that was a disney special but other than that i never got to see any animation so Um, so uh, i taught myself to uh, animate and then my dad bought me a a 9.5 millimeter camera which is an obscure french gauge Um, and i was able to finally put my drawings um, into uh, motion, so I was able to see it, uh, what I'd been doing for those two years. You know. Wow,
1: so you started out knowing how to do animation, at least the principles of it, and being able to use the camera, and now you're able to apply this on a feature film that is not supposed to look like animation. It's supposed to right. look real.
2: Well, that was, a, that was the interesting thing about the um, the readouts that we did. There were, there were no computers used um, in the making of the movie.
1: Right. With no the, computers used in the making of this movie, it, with the, the exception keypad.
2: of the accounting office and the adding machine. You know. <laughs> but uh, ahead
1: of their time, accounting office. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so because there were no computers, it, it was funny to be involved in Tron later on, because um, that was the first, the first uh, computer animation used in a feature film. So right. like, you know.
1: Exactly. Um, so I'll let you introduce the second clip. Because it's an interesting transition in your career. So uh, I'll let you go ahead and introduce what this is.
2: Okay. well, I finished 2001 in 1968. Doug Trumbull asked me to come and work on a picture called Zabriskie Point. And we went out to uh, Rosamond Dry Lake in the Mojave Desert. And we let off thousands of pounds of napalm in uh, huge crucibles and shot them with a high speed camera. And um, this was for Zabriskie Point, where at the end of the movie, the uh, the whole world blows up. So, um, and it it was never used uh, in the movie.
1: So Twelve years later, right?
2: Twelve years later, uh, I was with, uh, I I went to a screening of the film in the uh, up in the Berkshires, and Doug told a story um, ab- about the 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 origin of the. Uh, this uh, uh, opening scene, let's play it. Let's
1: you know. play it. Let's take a look, let's see if anyone recognizes it. I'm sure you all recognize that. That was from uh, the original Blade Runner movie. Yes. That's the opening sequence.
2: Which I don't have on my resume, but uh, I do like to show the <laughs> <laughs> You got
1: credited for a movie 12 years before this one. I wanna know, how did you, that looks like a, a, a shot taken from a helicopter composited with the fire, the explosions you mentioned course if I want to do that in After Effects today that's not that difficult but you didn't have After Effects or a computer for this well I
2: didn't put that shot together either okay Um, but uh, how did they do it it, well it's a miniature Mm -hmm. and uh, the the explosions were tracked in and uh, we'll hold out mats for it and then uh, and they were burned in so.
1: so you shot in the desert now the explosions themselves did you shoot against night or yes, y- yeah, okay so that pitch you c- black yeah. it was pitch black so then that way you can mask it
2: so the uh, so the explosions made their own uh, traveling mats yeah.
1: oh just all included because it's you shot against the black sky
2: well yeah I mean there's some photographic negative positive stuff that happens with it but right yeah essentially okay
1: and so then you have to shoot those as accurately and perfectly as possible and then they would get layered mm-hmm. on top of the shot of the, the miniature
2: well they're pretty much self matting so you know we weren't that careful. You can't be too careful with the explosions. <laughs> uh,
1: they just happen. You know. They just happen. Yeah. yeah. So, how were were you surprised when you saw it in this application?
2: Um, yeah, I had I had no idea. It was one of my favorite movies, and I had no idea my work was in the picture. You know. So.
1: Oh. <laughs> and apparently, the whoever did the credits didn't know either. <laughs> and this is a very common thing in Hollywood, actually. Uh, so okay, so putting this together, now we have, of course, our next flil, film because you were more of an integral part of the pyrotechnics and this kind of stuff uh, in this next clip. <laughs> so, first of all, uh, you know, I, w- I want to ask you a really nerdy question: Is that is that an unenhanced version of the film? That's that's not what the digital. Special effects that they added later, right? Those are your real explosions that you
2: created. Uh, well, no, I see a ring around. My a ring, original. right around the Death yeah. Star, yeah, so which wasn't there. Which was when it when it became known as Episode Four, a New Hope, you know. That uh, guy. All that stuff got uh, added, <laughs> but hopefully Disney's going to bring out an original version. I think there'd be a market for it, you know. So. Oh, we
1: really need an original version. I mean, I yeah. grew up on that, so yeah. I remember the differences. When I watch a DVD or a Blu-ray of the new stuff, and it jumps out at me. I'm like, yeah. Han shot first. I mean, this right. is ridiculous. <laughs> yes, exactly. Han shot first. So uh, for those of you who know, don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it, please, later. And so how did you get involved in this small film? Because this is different. This director is not as famous and doesn't have the reputation of, of someone like Stanley Kubrick. This is a different type of project altogether.
2: Yeah, well, originally I um, interviewed to be the visual effects director on, on the movie. Um, but I kind of I I had a, a cinematography career, um, shooting live action, on a slew of Roger Corman movies, and there, uh, that seemed to be a more important direction for me to go because that's what I was trying to be as a you know full-on cinematographer. But uh, George went he went to England, and then when he came back, um, the there hadn't been one frame of. Uh, visual effects shot yet by ILM and it was really because they were uh, they were creating the uh, signature uh, hardware software of the motion control cameras that created the motion blow when you're shooting the models you know so um, uh, so he kind of got desperate and he, he called me called me up and said there are, uh, I want, you to, I want you to come here and get a camera and we're going to get some guys in some black velvet suits and some black rods and we're going to fly these models through on black sticks in, in front of the lens and we're going to shoot everything live action that way. You know. So of course that didn't work out. but <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> but, uh, but so I'm, I'm, my, uh, my unit got turned into a little, um, into a little pyrotechnic unit. And we started off on a very small stage. And basically, we were trying to create zero-G explosions. And the way you do that is, you know, because obviously when you have an uh, explosion in gravity, it creates a mushroom cloud. And it doesn't look like it's in space, you know. So, um, so basically, we did that by shooting directly upwards at the explosion. And the explosion would happen directly over the, um, Directly over the lens, so we'd have a we'd have a high-speed camera pointing straight up, and a, a chunk of plywood to protect the camera, and a hole cut out to shoot through, and a little piece of glass over it, and then we'd start letting off all these little bombs overhead. And our, uh, uh, Joe Viscosa was our powder guy, who was really like the talent, you know, because right. uh, uh, he was mixing up all the Titanium and the gas bombs and okay. all, all this stuff, you know sounds dangerous So the, for the first day we walked in on the uh, stage I, rem- I remember he was in one of the changing rooms for uh, um, um, Which were normally to change film but he was mixing powder in there and there was a big big puff of smoke that came out and his, his arms were all burned and there uh, you know, and uh, it, w- it was definitely simpler days because we got bigger and bigger with the explosions and we ended up at producers studio um which is opposite paramount on one of their biggest stages and i had a 40 by 40 blue screen in the roof and we were shooting shooting it uh, lit with four arc lights and the the bombs came down through the middle of the uh, the blue screen and uh we were shooting them with a uh, VistaVision camera but um and the bombs were kind of—they had a like black powder bomb, and then there was the, you know, another bag that had uh, uh, napalm in it. And um, it's I a hot room. It, it, it is. <laughs> and I—I I, looked at some pictures of it recently, and our entire fire protection was um, our uh, key grip had a, a handheld fire extinguisher. You know. <laughs> And, and that, I'm not uh, sure that would have been adequate. And, and I do remember uh, kind of wiping some burning napalm off my arm after one of the explosions as I was walking away. You know, oh, of course, simpler days. You know.
1: Wow, that sounds like a Michael Bay movie <laughs> happening behind the scenes there. So you mentioned uh, they used VistaVision cameras for yeah. these shots. Now the film itself was shot in Academy Super 35.
2: Um, anamorphic, yeah. Anamorphic, sorry. Yeah. Anamorphic Super
1: 35. Yeah. So they used a 4-3 size almost frame and used as much of the film as possible, but that doesn't compare to the size of VistaVision, which is larger. Uh, Why would you use that for the play? Well,
2: you always when you're doing a visual effect, you're always, uh, you're always making a duplicate or a dupe of uh, whatever you're working with, and it always loses sharpness, mm-hmm. and it picks up contrast. So by using a, a large format negative, it allows you to um, have a much better chance when it goes to optical of looking first generation. Because you
1: know? in this first Star Wars movie, all this was optical, right? These are all layers of optical film at the end that were layered together. Absolutely. Correct, to create yeah. these effects.
2: In an optical printer.
1: In an optical printer. Right. Um, so how was this experience, you know, how long were you on this project? And how does it compare to like working on 2000? Um,
2: it doesn't take very long to blow up models, <laughs> so, uh, you know. um, I, I actually had I, I was at Apogee. Well, it was ILM in those days. Um, it was in Van Nuys, and after the movie, ILM went up north, and then um, the the guys that were left formed a, a special effects group called Apogee. Mm. But um, I'm I'm kind of a, a race car. Uh, buff and so they had a machine shop. So I took my race car over there yeah. and there, uh, I used to machine machine parts and do a lot of welding on the car and uh, So I was I was like right in there like the whole time the movie was being made sure, but I think uh, My contribution was only like about eight weeks, you know
1: gotcha, but you got all that time to spend working on your Indeed car I did. <laughs> While they yeah. were working It was great. Yeah. So that's really great. Um, And then also the uh, VistaVision cameras, you also shot high frame rates, correct?
2: Yes. Probably a little too high frame rate.
1: Oh, do you think so? Why is that?
2: Well, they only go up to...
1: Like 100? Like 100, yeah. Yeah. And would you want it even slower than that? Yeah. Because what do you want? You want just (coughs) as much information as possible. Exactly.
2: And, you know, the slower it is, the bigger the explosion looks.
1: Oh, gotcha. Okay. But
2: when you can't... When you can't go any faster, you just have to make the explosion bigger. So <laughs> like, you know.
1: That makes a lot of so sense. That's what we did. Okay. Yeah. That's how you got the epic feel and, uh, yeah. of what's going on. Yeah. All right, so now you know who was responsible for blowing up the Death Star. It wasn't Luke Skywalker. That was Bruce All right. Logan. All right, let's show the next clip because now we get into practical effects. This is the incredible shrinking woman. It is. Lily Tomlin. Yeah. Uh, this is like, that looks really good. <laughs> Well, it's a,
2: it it was an interesting picture for me to do because uh, I did all the visual effects as process shots. Now, uh, process photography is when you use a, a a projector to project a plate, uh, either background or foreground, in you know, front front projection or rear projection. And the great part about that is that. You, when you finish shooting your process shot, you send it to the lab and it's ready to cut into the movie. There's not a, there's not a long process of opticals and all, all that kind of stuff to do. So um, uh, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a challenge to do it that way, but it worked out really good. And the, the director was able to see exactly what he was getting. You know? But it did mean, once again, we shot all the background plates in uh, VistaVision and um it was it was a fun project very fun
1: to to explain this to the audience it means basically like today if you had a green screen that automatically can be knocked out and you see an image and there are systems that do this that knock out the green screen and give you a live image that's very pristine and clean and usable you can actually edit with yeah i've when done a do lot it. of live matting as well yeah which is which is which is sim- great yeah. yeah and so this is a very mm. similar process but at the same time there are inherent issues like you said you know shooting in VistaVision, the background plates but also you don't get the same exposure level right necessarily with the rear projection you have to have a very flat screen uh back there so you don't see any textures or anything like that well
2: you <coughs> yeah you, you have to have the projector on a an extremely long lens so even if you're shooting a shot from here to that wall the projector's is probably back another 120 feet uh, oh no. from the screen okay and for front projections are a whole different animal that's when you're you 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 have actually got um, um, the projector is shooting down the same uh, optical path as the uh, as the camera the camera so um so
1: Oh that makes sense because if you project it from an angle it look like Yeah. Look and like you a different and perspective. plus you'll see the shadow of the axe on the, the screen. You know, oh, so.
2: Right, right, right. So th- um that was pretty complex, but we did that. Um you know, the 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 way we figured out which were gonna be front projection, which were gonna be rear projection, was basically how big she was in the frame for any of these particular shots, you know.
1: And then this is, of course, mixed with a lot of great props, really amazing production yeah. design. you know, I mean, that's fantastic stuff looks production design. Fan- yeah, I mean, the match between the kitchen and, you know, what's going on with her at, at her small size—it's incredible.
2: It's yeah, and, and you know, as she gets smaller and smaller through the movie, that you know, they did a fantastic job. Um, you know, I think there was a <coughs> there was a there was an intermediate-sized kitchen. Before the one where she's really small. Oh, okay. So, so there's that, like know. varying
1: size kitchens. Yeah, make.
2: wonderful. And uh, one of one of the things I'd seen a lot of uh, little people movies before, and um, I kept seeing people, you know, run from one light source into another light source into another light source, and it gave me gave gave away the effect. Right. So what I did was build like these huge uh, 12, 12 by twelve soft lights, and snooted them so that. Um, you know, to to make her look small, you want to make your lights. Light source big. Yeah. So yeah. you sc- scale everything up, and oh, wow. it kind of it worked out. Again, we got lucky again. <laughs>
1: so, yeah. Well, I'd lo- I like to also comment on your framing, your choice of framing <laughs> of the shots. Especially in that sequence with the garbage disposal, you have to match the action, right? And you have to still maintain the 180 degree line, right? It still does look correct, and it absolutely does. How did you even plan for that like how do you shoot one before the other or how does well, work? it
2: well it, you know whenever you're shooting uh effect shots you gotta storyboard it so um you know there was a long period of uh me and joel schumacher sitting down with sherm labby the um the storyboard artist and um you know, just pl- planning out the movie really well so all those screen directions worked, you know? Yeah. But then, uh, of course, no director likes to be uh, uh, tied down to the storyboard, so he, said, uh, just because Sherm drew it this way doesn't mean we're gonna shoot it that way, you
1: know? Can't we just reverse the angle right. and go from this way? Yeah. And you're
2: like, oh, <laughs> it's gonna throw off everything. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. So the experience overall of doing that picture?
2: Oh, fantastic. You know.
1: And at this point in your career, you had established yourself as a working cinematographer.
2: Um, yeah, I was working in major studio shooting a big picture, right? I'm Great. Okay. Well, we have that's a good. really
1: big picture that's next, the oh. next clip, so. Okay. I think we should show that. Let's do that. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So, I have to admit something to you, Bruce. This is one of my all-time favorite films. Oh, good. Ever. Uh, <laughs> I actually wanted that Tron helicopter for myself when I was younger.
2: Well, you can have one with a little bit of Scotch tape and oh, yeah? Scotch light. Yeah. Nice i'll do that
1: so in this film of course you're the the principal cinematographer and also in charge of making decisions on how you're going to film this because this is going to be the first film right like you mentioned before that was going to integrate computer special effects into the movie yeah uh and i and what you told me before was when you showed up they were planning on shooting the whole movie on white right
2: yeah they were they were going to do it in white limbo the problem with white limbo is that you you have to light up the whole thing, whether you're using that area or not. I changed it over to do the same thing we did with the explosions. you know um, uh, we shot we shot everything against black, which allowed us just to light up the areas that we um, that we needed to see and you know if it fell off, then it black is black you know but the w- we had an incredible amount of light because we were fighting we were fighting um, we were fighting light in four ways because it was a graphic process and because they blew up every 70 millimeter frame that I shot onto a, on a codalith about this wide and put it under the animation camera and shot it with um, um, diffusion filters and colored gels you know um, everything had to be uh, everything had to be, completely sharp because if it went into motion blur at all, like the little lines on the suit, the, the fine lines, if somebody moved and and there was motion blur, the line just disappeared when they made the coat the codolith, you know? So um, so we were fighting that because we were shooting a big negative. You've got left depth of field. Right. And and um we had to shoot a very short shutter so that there was to cut down on the motion blow. We had to have infinite focus from the you know from the nearest thing to camera to the far farthest thing from camera. So uh,
1: basically, you had to close your shutter angle down. Yes. What what deg- what degrees were you using? Like 45. Um,
2: we got as low as 22 and a half.
1: Like yeah. 22 and a half. Wow. Right. So uh, for those of you that might not know when you close your shutter down which is normally 180 degrees if you close it down the, m- the more you close down the more stops of light you need.
2: Yeah, so you go from from 180 to 90 you've got to use twice the light. Twice the light and then, and then from 90 then to 45 twice the light. Twice the light. From down to 22 and a half you
1: know. four times times 2 so eight <coughs> times more lighting right. than you would have used at a normal 180 degree shot. Yeah,
2: so I would light something and then I'd bring the two 8Ks on either side and say, yeah, that's just, just a little bit more for fill Light, you know. And but
1: unlike <laughs> the neutron Tron movie, the original Tron movie, the the glowing part that's on everybody, that's right. that's drawn in later. That's not, yes. they're not glowing. No. Because, yeah, you know, now we can make suits glow with LED lights, but that wasn't the case. Right.
2: So, um, yeah, it was... Um, it was a challenge, you know. Burbank uh, uh, Water and Power called the studio twice, and they were going to shut us down <laughs> if uh, if wow. we didn't kind of lower the, lower the heat just a little bit, you know. So wow, um, but uh, yeah, on. the neutron. You you don't like the neutron, but I I thought it was okay. You know? Not as colorful, but you know.
1: <clears throat> I, I didn't I didn't like the story as much. Okay, uh, in the first movie, it's kind of like a childhood dream, you know where you basically, you know, if you played video games like I did, because I grew up when video games first started, you know, like I had an Atari 2600. So for me personally, it was like, oh, yeah, this is what I imagined myself doing when I'm playing Pitfall. I'm feeling Mm -hmm. like I'm Indiana Jones and I'm jumping over stuff. We see that now in a recent movie like, uh, you know, Ready Player One, that living the fantasy through the the video game. And nowadays we have first player games where it's a lot easier to do that or feel that way. But back then there wasn't... A mainstream film that ever took video games seriously. that's This was the first no,
2: one. No, well, the, you know, the only video games really then were, I think, this was before Nintendo sixty four. So I think oh, they we're yeah. really only arcade games, you know, Right, yeah. Were yeah. available. We played uh, Battle Zone on set.
1: Yeah, we're talking about the Pac Man, Miss Pac Man. My, 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 my era record movie. was one
2: hundred nineteen thousand, you know, but Jeff Bridges. Did three hundred and sixty uh, you know, something on pedals. Yeah. Okay, so he really wasn't a yeah, video games. Yeah, Not yeah, yeah, yeah. Not bad.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, that, that's. I think that's why it had the impact on me personally is because of that. And then, right. uh, you know, listening to you talk about the technical aspect of it, it actually it's a learning lesson. Like, if you are doing animation, if you are doing green screen, yeah, it, sometimes you do want cleaner lenses, um, you know, sharper image that you can mess with later, but you need the information. You know, maybe you do need a higher shutter speed or lower shutter angle. Right. You know, to to get that. So I I think it's a lesson for everybody. That, you know, even. But this then you've got a
2: you know that, that low low shutter angle is not a very natural look. So yeah. Very often when you do that, you've got to put the motion blur back in. But you can do that. There's so many post production tools, tools now. You
1: know, yeah. You can so. absolutely do that now. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So let's go to the next clip for a film that you said. The director asks, asked you to make the VFX look purposely bad.
2: Yeah, he wanted <laughs> so them look really cheesy. So.
1: Make he wanted them really cheesy. Yeah. So let's see why.
2: I think we succeeded.
1: So that's from Airplane. <laughs> if many of you recognized. So let me ask you: Were any airplanes harmed in the making of this movie? <laughs>
2: um, no, actually, there were a lot more harmed in Star Wars. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, it was it, it was fun to do. They were uh, you know the the uh, once again, we were shooting process photography with the plane, and I should have—I should have had wires <laughs> hanging from the plane to make it look a little worse. But uh, we actually did that upside down. We put the wires, we hung the plane upside down, uh-huh. and turned the camera upside down because oh. you're never looking for wires yeah, when on the, the bottom. On the bottom you know, so. Oh, it's easy to hide there.
1: Yeah, you know, this really—this there is a good balance of cheesiness with professionalism, but it takes a seasoned professional <laughs> to make it look like that. Well, We try. Um, we, we do have a shorter time right now, so we're going to jump into the next clip, unless you have something else to say about
2: the no, process. Yeah?
1: That's Is that quite all right? Yeah. All right, so we're going to show you Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So Bruce, you were the uh, second unit DP, basically filming all the stunts uh, on this picture.
2: Yeah, club. director cameraman.
1: Director of yeah. camera for a second unit. Right. Okay. And or sorry, director of photography for a second unit.
2: Yes, well, it was my it was my little unit, but there was that was my month in uh, month in Vegas in August. You know, fantastic time. It's to get nice and the cool road. then, yeah, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so in this one, uh, what's really nice is that you know stunts look fantastic. So obviously, you had amazing stunt drivers. Yeah, we did. You you have actors that are selling it. During the process trailer shots or during the car mount shots as yeah. well, um, you know. But the framing, the, you know, the cars coming at the camera, uh, the choice of where you're placing the camera—is it behind them and seeing both of them at the same time? Is it off to the side? How are you showing the police? You never show an intimate shot of the police; only like they're far away, as if you're escaping from them. Uh, how did you storyboard this? How did, how are you? No, on?
2: no. We just are, um, okay. Uh, we just went out and shot it. You know. Um, we we had kind of a restriction because uh terry gilliam didn't really want to use any longer lenses than uh he's like 35 was getting to be a real telephoto <laughs> oh, really uh, yeah because the movie was really made on 18 millimeter lenses you know oh wow lots
1: of white lenses so, super 35 yeah, format
2: right not anamorphic this is but spherical. Yeah, yeah so um yeah we just we we just uh, uh you know, we knew what the the stunt was going to be, and we just placed the cameras where we thought it would be most effective. And they're uh, um, great, great stunt guys. And you know, I I had um, I had read this book um, in the '60s. I in Peter Fonda's uh, uh, production office, he had this book, and I read it. So it was kind of cult- countercultural required reading, you know. Gotcha. And it. Uh, uh, so knowing like the white shark which is the, and the red car, they were all they were characters in the movie for me and uh, so it was great to be 25 years later shoot, shooting those characters you know
1: and, and making it come alive you really yeah, did make yeah. that car come alive yeah. it, it, especially in that on the air uh, the, on the tarmac you know right. it's falling apart kind <laughs> of feel for that baby <laughs> they really tossed it around yeah. All right, we're, we're getting low on time, so what I'm going to do yeah. now is I'm going to turn to the audience and do some Q&A okay. before we introduce the last clip. Okay. Yeah, uh, So <coughs> who's got the first question in the crowd? First of all, let's, can we thank Bruce for putting together
0: all these clips and educating us today? So after you're shooting a film, just in curiosity, for post-production, how much time do you spend in color and do you like coordinating with colorists and things like that to kind of get the image you want?
2: Well, um, that's a. Did did you set him up to ask? No, I was going to ask,
1: but hey. I love it. (laughs) Okay. Great question.
2: Well, um, I think that's one of the. um, That's the elephant in the room for cinematographers now because um, I, for the last five years, everything, probably like 80 or 90% of it, I've colored myself and uh i think it's something that directors of photography need to do because so much of the control of the process has moved into um has moved into that area and i think if uh, if dps don't uh, um, take control of the process it can't really be the auteur of the image anymore you know well i'm I I don't collaborate because it's e- it's just easier for me to twiddle the knobs, you know. But most DP's they'll, they'll shoot something and they might they might do some on-set color correction and send those references to the um, to the editing room. But there's there's no reason that it necessarily happens, you know. So stuff gets to uh, uh, Stefan at Company Three. He seems to do every picture there is, right? You know? <laughs> and um, um, I I think it's, I, I think it's a problem. I think it, but every time I talk to young DPs, they, they a lot of them color their own work. But if I mention it to like an older DP, they, they just, they, they don't think any of their control is um, going away, but it is, you know. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm super curious about
1: Tron now seeing it and, and the way we talked about your evolution from being a visual effects supervisor into becoming the principal DP. Um, how, and, and it, it being such a groundbreaking movie in terms of effects and your background in really understanding effects, um, I'm sure that you had to invent new techniques uh, to do a movie like that. So I'm curious what the what the testing process was like, what the in terms of what kinds of techniques were gonna work, what the iteration process was, um, were you, leading that? Were, w- did you hire a visual effects supervisor of your choice? Um, sort of like what the prep was like on, on something so groundbreaking.
2: Yeah. Um, <coughs> I, I don't know. It was really weird. Um, I, b- uh, I went to the Disney Studios to uh, meet uh, Steven Lisberger. And I thought it was going to be for an interview, but it was kind of like when I got there, it was, like it was like I had the job or something. And so, but they did need a proof of concept at Disney so we shot a uh, we shot a test in White Limbo, and um, I think we screen tested uh, Deborah Harry uh, as the um, as the Yuri role, and um, I guess she didn't make the cut, but I did, so that was good. <laughs> um,
1: it's the only th- time you're ever going to be chosen over Deborah Harry, <laughs> indeed,
2: indeed. Um, but um, once once that test was done, you know, um, you know, it then got into. Well, I, I meant th- the biggest part of the, of the uh, uh, production was the storyboarding and the concept art um, that was done by uh, Sid Mead and Mobius, and they made the biggest contribution to the way everything was going to look. You know. And then we just had to translate that into, into the real world. But the, um, the, the crossover between the, the actual first CG that was ever done and making it look like our live action, that was the biggest challenge that we had. You know.
1: uh, given your VFX background um, between film and digital, you know, what's your preference and why?
2: Starting in fully analog... Effects and then going through uh, computer-controlled analog effects, like Star Wars, going into pure digital. I I remember when um, uh, Jurassic Park came out, and they were still going to do most of it uh, conventionally, but Dennis Muren showed um, uh, Stephen a a first test of the brontosaurus, you know, and. Suddenly they nodded and said, "It's good enough," you know. And then, um, then I think it's really gone too far the other way. I think um, I, I look at a lot of effects films now, and it's just uh, it just looks like it just looks synthetic to me, you know. It's just a little too perfect, and it, so I'm I'm very glad to see that like miniatures. Uh, are, are coming back in because my favorite kind of effects are based on live action and then the uh, the effects come in and enhance that live action and I'm, I, r- I remember th- um, Joe Lethierry was talking about one of the scenes in their, um, um, Lord of the Rings and they had done a complete production they they'd had all these guys dressed up and they were in a set and they were lit and they And he just looked at it and he just threw it all away and just did it all uh, synthetically you know so um i i i mean i think it's fantastic what you can do now but um but somehow there's got to be a little bit more analog feel to it
0: i'm here with some young cinematographers and i really want to ask you about that symbiotic relationship with the director (laughs) um is it, when does it really work? When do you find the communication is something where you're really working together to create something that's, that's, that's um, uh, both of yours, both of your vision?
2: Okay, well, w- when I'm directing something and I'm the cinematographer, the, c- the <laughs> communication is fantastic. But, no, I think it's really uh, understanding the story and what the director wants to do with it, you know. And um, I think you know a, a lot of it is uh, personal chemistry, and and the understanding of the story. You know, it's like somebody asked me how, how how should I pick an editor? Well, somebody you can stand to be in a room with for six months? <laughs> you know, so um, in in the in the same way, I think it's uh, uh, just getting on with somebody on a personal level, and then being you know the direct director. Of t- Photographer's job is to take that vision and really, he's running all the departments and they're they're bringing bringing them all together. So it's a very um, there's a lot of moving parts in it. And the more uh, a cinematographer can know other areas, I think the 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 better he is in dealing with that director. Or yeah. she. What's he or she? Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> he, in my case. So you worked with Kubrick,
0: and on *Space Odyssey*, uh, did he let on during shooting at all? Um, there's like this internet theory floating around that the
2: I, di- I didn't see any stages that had any of any moon sets on them at all. So I'm not able to confirm that theory or deny it.
0: He's dead, you know. You don't have to. No, no, no. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm just gonna. The ask only thing it, I saw
2: on other st- uh, other stages there was. Um, uh, or all the race cars from uh, um, Grand Prix, which were very interesting, but no, no moon landing sets. I don't know if he had time to really get into that. You know? <laughs> busy making That's a movie, you know? Good
1: so.
0: answer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you everybody for the questions. Uh, Bruce, uh, before we leave, I, I wanna talk about your last project. We wanna show a clip from The Last Fair. This is something you could watch on Amazon Prime currently. And you have a different role in this this picture. You're not a cinematographer of this movie.
2: Uh, no, I did virtually everything but but the cinematography <laughs> and the acting. But right, uh, no, it was a um, it was a passion project uh, from a story that I found on a pitch website, and uh, I worked on the script with the girl whose story it is, and she was um, an eleven year old. Uh, she she she's actually the oldest. Living survivor of the particular kind of uh, muscular dystrophy that she has, and uh, it's a story. It's a story of her childhood, um, and it, it's a feature film that I uh, directed and wrote with her, and um, produced, and edited, and colored. So, uh
1: it's a very personal project.
2: It is, and. Um, um it's on Amazon, Lost Fair. If you do see it, we'd love to get a review from you because that's what—that's the engine that drives my next project. So, you know. thank you.
1: All right, I hope to see a lot more coming out of you, Bruce. We've been very excited and blessed to have you here today. Let's give him a big round of applause.
2: Thank you so much for coming.
0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. Since we're trying something new here with the podcast, we're really glad you tuned in today. We've got a huge archive of these panels, and we're excited to be releasing them in this format on a more regular basis. So please subscribe and give us a rating. That definitely helps more people find us. If you want to see a video version of this panel, along with some more in-depth clip analysis from Bruce, check out our Manhattan Edit Workshop YouTube page. And hey, if you want to learn more about video editing, check out mewshop.com. That's M-E-W-Shop.com for lists of our regular upcoming classes. Also, you can follow us on... (laughs) Also, you can follow us on social media. We've got Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and that's where you can find the latest updates on what's next from us here at Manhattan Edit Workshop. Thanks, everybody. Until next time.